Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives, but is also complicit in the health disparities between First Nations and settlers in Australia. I want to acknowledge that despite that colonisation, 60,000 years of wisdom continues, and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a personal and daily responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today I speak with Professor Sharon Friel. Sharon is an ARC Laureate Fellow, Professor of Health Equity and Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, REGNET for short. That's at the Australian National University. Her research focuses on the political economy of health, governance and planetary, social and commercial determinants of health and health inequities. Her 2019 book, Climate Change and the People's Health, highlights the importance of addressing global consumptogenic systems. Today, we spoke about some of her recent work with colleagues called Power and People's Health. We often talk about the social determinants of health, what structural or social factors lead to health or ill health. We've been talking about it for for decades, that uh, social policy and health policy, as well as health governance, needs to look beyond the health system towards social policies in housing, planning and trade, including policies that are controlled and implemented by local communities. But despite decades of research supporting this, it does not happen. Power. That is something we often talk about when discussing uh, how the social order remains intact to the benefit and disadvantage of different communities and sectors. Reading Power and People's Health and talking with Sharon today, I saw for the first time a framework that can help us examine in empirical terms, how power sustains racism, sexism, and neoliberal ideologies that continue to undermine health and the health system. I hope you enjoy the episode. So please subscribe, rate the podcast. We're available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, or anywhere else you can find your reputable regulation podcasts. Um, well, thank you so much for, for coming today, uh, Sharon. As you know, the first question uh, on this podcast is, why does reg- regulation, uh, you'd think I'd get that right if I ask it so often, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? Uh, thanks, Simon. And so first of all, just to acknowledge that I'm joining people from the lands of the Ngunnawal people. Uh, I'm here in Canberra uh, and to pay my respects to elders past uh, and present and, and emerging. Um, so yeah, so what's regulation? Well, so I'm in the School of Regulation and Global Governance uh, here at the Australian National University. 
And we really think about regulation and governance in a very broad sense, a very holistic sense, really around you know, influencing the course of events. So it's that broad, uh, which of course means uh, everybody, everything uh, influencing uh, the nature of society and the, the way we live our lives. It's pretty broad, isn't it? And I think that's uh, really interesting. Um, I think that's when you when you highlight that. Hopefully, you're highlighting the um, the value or the significance of the podcast in the sense that most people think of regulation, including a lot of practitioners, in quite a narrow sense of delegated legislation, often from um, from law, like regulations themselves, or just a very strict kind of legal approach. But it sounds like you're taking a a broader interpretation, which I might share. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just think of, you know, we, we sort of talk about it here in the building of, you, know, you walk into our, our building and the first thing that you see are stairs. So there's sort of your know, architecture, interior design has regulated our behaviour. Yeah. It draws us to use the stairs rather than the first thing you see being the, the lift. Uh, and I just think it's such a, a lovely, simple mm. uh, reminder of regulation happening on a, on a daily basis in a way that can be uh, organised uh, through interior design, or it can be uh, through legislation, mm. um, or it can be in the... the uh, sort of the private uh, sphere as well and yeah I mean we're going to pick up on all of that I'm, I'm sure but yeah so it really is that broad uh, I think. Yeah absolutely and um, you know when you when you give that example I think of um, uh, you know uh, green lights red lights you know structure yeah. when we go and then that sits within a legal kind of framework as well and yeah. um, I, I, I do a lot of my work in in mental health and um, regulation in the way that you're talking about it can be for better or worse and and a lot of people have their movements regulated by being detained in a psychiatric facility and the design of those um, facilities um, regulate how people behave so often they'll put um, the quote-unquote nurse station in the middle of the of the inpatient unit and so that's so that people can you know, have visibility of all the other patients in that area. And so there's kind of a surveillance kind of function um, to that too. And so, yeah, I suppose I'm just... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And to, I mean, to, when, when you... Um, that, that example probably moves um, quite well into the next question I had, which is that a lot of the work that you're focusing on is... Um, well, I won't say a lot because I've actually looked at um, the things you've written and you've written about four and a half million papers, um, but uh, <laughs> one small um, pocket of about 100 papers you've written um, focuses on the um, interaction between politics or um, power and health equity. Um, firstly, could you explain what you mean by health equity? That won't be obvious to some people. And then the relationship with politics or, or power. Yeah, so health equity, and well, maybe I'll start with health inequities, uh, really speaks to this idea of the differences in health outcomes for different populations, different nations, uh, being not just unnecessary but and avoidable, those differences in the, the health outcomes, but also incredibly unfair and unjust. So inequity and equity, equity is just really this of the opposite of that. And it's the absence 
of health equity is the absence of these. And so it's a very deliberate uh, term. In some countries, you speak about health inequalities. In some countries, you speak about health disparities. But health inequities is getting to the avoidable and the um, the injustice in the fact that they exist and they're not being uh, avoided. And so your question of this sort of being um, intertwined with politics and policy and power. So thinking about, so what drives health inequities uh, within societies, between uh, societies? And because we see these systematic patternings, it's not a chance thing. It's very deliberate. Oh, well, yeah, sometimes it is very deliberate, but it's socially um, influenced. Mm. Yeah, and you're going back to your regulation, you know, steering the course of events or influencing the course of events. And so the choices that are made by politicians by the bureaucracy, by the private sector, by civil society, by us as individuals. It, all of that, your politics, policy, power, shapes the daily living conditions for people. And those daily living conditions are very unequally distributed. If you think about your quality of housing, access to housing, quality of housing, uh, education, our employment conditions, you're very socially uh, graded and that gets into our minds and it gets under our skin and that affects our physical and our mental well-being. So as soon as we take a social model of health and we understand that there is something about society that is shaping health and the distribution of health outcomes, that immediately takes us into questions of whose interests are best served through policy, mm. and through political decisions. And then that starts to ask the question of, well, if certain interests are served better or worse, who's got the power in those systems that is shaping the daily living our daily living conditions so it then starts to get really mixed health equity is a you asked me about health equity and we start we have to talk about politics and policy yeah absolutely and i i just reflect on when you talk about um you know when i don't want to say we because i'm not nearly as um, expert on these topics as you but when people who work in policy talk to lots of people out in in the community um they'll often attribute these diff differential health outcomes to um, quote-unquote education or a lack of, of education on behalf of certain communities. And um, I imagine, I mean, even the fact that, pe that, that, different, that people come to that view, I think is, is a political or a, an expression of power in some ways that they come to view or potentially indirectly blame the, the marginalised communities. Um, but I guess... What, what, how do you how do you respond to that? That maybe these things are kind of just um, you know a result of um, a lack of education or good health behaviours, perhaps on, on the behalf of those communities. That's not my view. That's obviously just a view that's that's put forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple of things in there. One is um, 
you know, we live in a society the past few decades, it's been very much of an individualized society, individual responsibility, um, you know, a small state, greater personal responsibility. And so that discourse, that paradigm uh, enables that sort of uh, response that you're speaking about. But there's also, I think, um, the differenti differentiation between sort of equity of opportunity and equity of outcome. And so when somebody says, oh, but look, there's education available to everybody uh, or there's housing available to everybody. You know, we've got plenty of housing. Well, actually, and so that the, the argument going equity of opportunity there, mm -hmm. but of course, that absolutely does not recognize the inequities in the resources that different groups in society uh, have access to that have been, like you speak about, um, marginalized societies, which of course uh, undermines people's uh, social uh, mm. capital, cultural capital, uh, you know, a whole range of, sort of um, capabilities. So we don't have, we don't actually have equity of opportunity. There's a load of stuff out there that's mm -hmm. available, mm -hmm. but not every group in society is equally resourced to make use of them. When we start from the question of um, equity or inequity in the outcome, which I would love us to do, mm -hmm. um, then then we see that, well, actually these, um, these opportunities are not equally distributed at all. And addressing mm -hmm. those systematic structural inequities is vital mm -hmm. to get to the equity of, of outcomes. So, so the discourse that, or the, the response that, that you rightfully highlighted, which is by far the most, a, a very common response, not the most, but a, a very common response is, yeah, sort of mixed up in those two things that I've been yeah. speaking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, the, when you talk about those two, quality of opportunity and outcome, yeah, there's kind of a, a minimalist and maximalist approach in my own mind to, to justice or health justice. Um, and, and you talk about the different resources to, to even access those opportunity in terms of equal opportunity. I just, you know, imagined that, there there is housing but to use your metaphor earlier there's no stairs to get there you know um, yeah. so that, or that community yeah. doesn't have the money to build the stairs to get there or you know they're on worse ground so you can't build stairs on that background or something you know, i'm probably <laughs> taking the metaphor as far as it can go um, <laughs> um uh, so you and some colleagues on this topic you wrote a, a paper last year which is the reason i i reached out to you um it, it was called people no, it's called power and people's health. It examined how power shapes public policy for health equity. Um, the two kind of key concepts that we spoke about just now. You've been in the academic game in a while. So I imagine you've had these conversations or you've been looking at these issues for a long time. What motivated you to really, and that was, and it was a huge paper that you wrote. What made it motivated you to investigate the, the, the two concepts here of, you know, power, health equity, and public policy, all three. Yeah, so yeah, so much of my research historically um, and in the fields of the health equity, social determinants, health equity field, 
a lot of our attention historically had been kind of shining the light of the existence of health inequities, mm. you know, showing the extent of health inequities within and between societies. And that was very important, you know, shining that light. And then there was work and I was involved uh, with the, the World Health Organization's uh, Global Commission on the Social Determinants of Health and Health Equity. That was, and we reported back in 2008. And what that, that was a huge global endeavor that pulled together all of the evidence, a lot of the evidence from around the world, showing um, some of the actions, policy and otherwise that could be taken across a range of domains. So types of action that was needed to do with employment conditions, the types of action that might be needed in urban planning, the types of conditions um, or the actions that might be necessary within, um, you know, to do with globalization. And so we identified the types of action that could make a difference to health inequities. And yet nothing happens. Now, I'm not so naive to think that you know, evidence has a, a linear relationship to action. Of course, it doesn't. Um, and I'm certainly not naive to think that a report uh, makes uh, much difference in that, you know, getting action to happen. But where this research that you were speaking about, the, the power related research was we were sort of starting to say myself and colleagues, there were a number of colleagues involved in this. This was a big five year NHMRC uh, grant that came out of that grant. And we were asking the questions of, well, if there is a lot known about the types of effective remedial action that could be taken to address health inequities, why is it not happening? Mm-hmm. And so if the political science literature tells us your know, power really matters in policy processes, you know, it, it shapes what gets onto a political and a policy agenda, what interests get advanced, who wins, who loses, and all of that power within the policy uh, processes influencing the implementation uh, of policy as well. You know, even if you get a bit of advancement of a policy agenda that addresses these sorts of issues, when you get to the implementation stage, sometimes it slips and we see it slips to that individualized responsibility again. So we, we just kind of wanted to know was power in the policy system an important factor yeah. in preventing action happening uh, in a way that you know, we've got all of this evidence why is it not happening mm. yeah and I um I can't stress enough for, for the listeners to to go go ahead and read this article because I think it is um uh I think you've just started something in terms of um providing a framework um that we can assess lots of different policy domains um with you you, you touch on, um, you know, quite a few different policy domains around um, closing the gap, around uh, the th- things that in policy policy frameworks or decisions that impacted health outcomes, if I if I remember correctly. So, close, closing the gap, um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, and I think you you identified from my um, recollection anyway that um, you know there was a tendency for power to frame 
even how the issue was understood. So you talked a bit about, and I see this in, in mental health, um, uh, biomedical kind of framings of the issue can lead to certain I guess, solutions proposed, but then to also to what you're talking about, how those things are, are implemented as well. Was that, I imagine that was a pretty strong finding out of the, out of the research. Yes. Um, so just, just for the listeners, if, if you're interested in something like that, so we interviewed 158 kind of policy actors, so ex-politicians, the bureaucrats, people in the business uh, world uh, and civil society actors across a number of policy domains. And you were mentioning some of them there. So we had seven policy case uh, studies. So, uh, and these were all areas that are the social determinants of health inequities. Mm -hmm. So trade policy, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, we looked at the NBN, uh, so in terms of digital uh, equity issues, paid parental leave, a very important social uh, policy, the Northern Territory emergency response mm, yes. uh, as well, uh, back in 2007. Mm. Uh, we looked at the Western uh, Sydney city deal, so uh, an infrastructure uh, mm. policy, um, closing the gap and primary health care. So a whole suite yeah. of domains and, and people um, listening might be saying what on the earth do they have to do with uh, people with health equity well these all shape our everyday living conditions Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. and then yeah. that matters for um, you know obviously for health and so yeah trying to tease apart what was happening across these different these seven cases who were the actors um, what were the is what were their interests? How were they advancing their interests? So was it an economic interest? Was it a medical interest? Was it a social interest? Um, what were the, the 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 frames, the discourses that they were using, uh, both publicly and privately, to advance those interests? And what were the institutional processes? You know, just things like. Um, intergovernmental committees, for yeah. example, or outside of the, the government uh, process. So we were examining all of these interests, ideas and uh, institutions, looking at the different forms of power. So mm. you know, everybody has power. Every actor in the policy system has power and they've got different types of power. And what we developed through this um power analysis allowed us to tease all of that apart and yeah you know just the sort of the a, a dominant uh, structural uh, overlay in all of this uh, was so biomedicalism yeah. uh, neoliberalism mm. we live in a, a neoliberal uh, world um, racism sexism um, were all pervasive so structural paradigms mm. that basically were shaping uh, the the rules of the game yeah the rules of the game and that's yeah. we had a whole conversation with um professor fiona haynes on on the rules of the game and um she talks about fields of struggle you know yeah. and um and i see there's a lot of overlap between what you're talking about here and and her work um, yeah yeah 
And so yeah. that, that that framework you're talking about is that the you know I, I I forewarned I think before this episode that I go off track sometimes. So um, is that the health equity power framework that you're talking about there? And yeah. so there's multiple different you know, for the listeners. There's multiple different levels of analysis that you go through in that framework. Yeah, and this is hopefully, so we used it from a health equity perspective, but really I hope um, for listeners you'll hear that this might be useful in a whole variety of of domains. So we looked at the different types of power that are in the policy system. So that might be structural power, it might be economic power, um, it might be um, discursive power, you know, I was talking about mm. the way things are framed, might be using your moral power, your sort of moral authority, um, your expert power, and, and your networks, your network power. So different types of power. And I should say this was all drawing on a number of different power theories exist. But we were also looking at different forms of power. So sometimes it's very visible. Yeah, you, you see power playing out in a visible way. So um, you know, your politician stands up and speaks in a particular way. They're using a particular uh, discursive power in the public uh, arena. You know, so mm. that's very visible. But often it's it's hidden. It's behind closed doors. Yeah. And that, of course, is where you start to get very worried. You know, what are the deals that are getting, getting done um, through that hidden power? The other one, which is even more concerning, is the invisible power. Yeah. the forms of power and that's where you don't even know that you're what you're thinking your behavior as a, a as someone in the bureaucracy you just kind of and we saw this in in our analysis that you just kind of automatically move towards an economic goal and that's there's it, you may not be getting told that but it's just this invisible power of this dominant neoliberal uh, paradigm at, at play and yeah. so it's it's influencing in a very deep way the other um, part of the health equity power framework was the spaces of power so yeah in a closed space and that's a very um yeah you just don't know who's in there at, in making those decisions it could be invited so if you think about government policy um, you know, stakeholder consultations, that's invited spaces of power. You, yeah. You're asked to put into that. And then the other area that we identified were claimed spaces of power. And this is particularly, uh, you see this with civil society, you mm. know, they, they might not be getting into the government decision-making um, table at a point in time. And so they create a whole other arena where, the issues are getting spoken about. It might be making use of the, the media, claiming a space there. Um, and when you start to, and it all happens at different levels, global, national, uh, and a bit more local. And so when you start to, what we were doing was looking at how these different types and forms and spaces and levels were all interacting through these seven policy cases that I was talking about. And you think, oh my goodness! <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, it's such a cool. Uh, I'm going to stop saying people should read it, but it's such a cool framework, and I do think it should be used in so many different contexts. And yeah, I, I totally resonate with your 
your concern about invisible power and how it can kind of shape, I'm sure there's like a Foucaultian, um, you know, internalization of, um, you know, the governmentality kind of theories about yeah. internalizing um, power. I reflect that I used to work um, in, in a couple of regulators and I worked in one regulator in, in particular and I went in with really sort of clear picture on on what was required, um, you know, to, to uphold the sort of legislative standards and the, the rights of people in particular contexts. And I remember I was just having so many battles, you know, so many battles to try to maintain this. And I remember starting to think, okay, well, I need to pick my battles a bit more. I'm, you know, I'm losing social or political capital here. Um, and I did that more and more. And then I finished um, finished that secondment and I went back to my old workplace, which is you know, far more bolshy kind of um, human rights kind of um, uh, abiding place. And everyone commented how conservative I'd slipped. Um, you know, um, and, and, you know, so it's just fascinating to see how my sort of um, uh, centre of gravity just shifted um, within a, you know, an institutional environment. And I would consider myself to be someone who's pretty black and white on things. And so I can totally see, and you see that when you interact with people in government, and I'm sure it was um, what you saw here, that um, institutional norms that are so normal that they're not visible are just, they're part of the language, they're part of the furniture, they're part of what holds the walls up, I imagine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, and I think it's that um, understanding, you know, again, so we're not passive, uh, and we'll sort of come to the hopeful bit in a second, because um, there <laughs> were moments of hope. Um, you know, so there, there's those kind of structures, both visible and invisible, shaping uh, the the actors in that system shaping their their norm, norms and behaviors, which of course ultimately affect what policy or practice looks like. Um, but of course, the flip side of that, and this is this kind of um, uh, dynamic and continuum between structure and agency, yeah. is the the agency, the agentic side of things, where. Uh, the, the policy policy actors at the same time having the potential to recalibrate yeah. those norms uh, and yeah the, the paradigms in which they're but that's incredibly difficult of course mm. um, but that's the hope we'll, we'll, we'll come to the to come to the hope but yeah I mean just some of the oh, it was just very disturbing to see and you know so in the interviews I was saying yeah. you know, we did all of these interviews with people and and just the you know, just horrifying still to hear about some of the you know incredibly sexist yeah. uh, ways of operating you know I, so I'm just going to read you a little quote so yeah, this was to do with paid parental leave um the paid parental leave scheme and so it you know, a quote from industry uh, said so there was the discussion about who has the responsibility for paying for the paid parental um, leave you know mm. was it should that be government should it be industry and stuff. Mm. Um, and so industry was saying and um, so it would be a very bad thing for women uh, and for businesses for employers to be forced to pay um, because it would most likely lead to discrimination and so there's a very kind of um, you know, I would say a, a very passive-aggressive yeah. uh, expression uh, of a, a very, uh, very sexist uh, approach to thinking about um, uh, social protection uh, within uh, the country. 
So yeah, they, uh, well, I could I could give you. I don't know if you want. Yeah, for uh, I, no, let's let's tease this out because I think that sounds that's so fascinating. Did you, did you read that as being an intention? Yeah, like quite an intentional framing of that, or do you think that was an, an unconscious or invisible one? That reads to me as a, like a certain level of sophistication in that framing but i'm not sure like as in not a good sophistication but um (laughs) semi-malevolent well well that it comes back to that thing of um the invisible power of these structural of these structures you know so the structure of neoliberalism um you're just being embedded in industry's way of thinking yeah, you know, just just with, and so it becomes like you say, you know, the norm. It's just the norm. It's just yeah. norm. So I would be, I would be very worried if that was somebody sitting in industry just sort of saying, okay, well, I'm deliberately going to speak about it in this way. But of course, that is what, um, yeah, that's what the whole PR machine is for, as well, isn't it? And and, and government relations people, but. Or, or you could say, yep, they sat and they very deliber- deliberately crafted that answer. Or you could say that was just, there was nothing unusual mm-hmm. for that person yeah. to say yeah. that because it is completely sensible within yeah. that structure of yeah. neoliberalism and sexism. Yeah, the banality of evil. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, to use that uh, uh, Hannah Arendt's old term. Um, and, and so... I mean, did you have more quotes? Did you have more things that were revealing in terms of the findings or, um, uh, yeah, more themes that kind of arose out of that? And I'd be really keen to hear any quotes or reflections you have on, on some of the key findings. Yeah, well, well maybe I'll just, I've got, I've got three quotes I pulled out for, for today because um, it, it really speaks to the structures of, um, of racism and colonisation. What was done. So remember, we were looking at uh, the Northern Territory Emergency Response uh, thing, uh, and also closing the gap. Mm. But so, so this is all to do with the Northern Territory Emergency Response. Mm. Yeah. So this was government um, army intervention up in the Northern Territories. So let me just read you three quotes, and it sort of shows three different types of power. Um, And so by using the health equity power framework, plug for the framework, Mm -hmm. it allowed us to get at these different forms of power. So first quote from a politician. So from the most current government, I think they give lip service to Aboriginal control and they take a very top-down punitive approach. So that is ideology. That's what I see as ideology, a particular structural uh, intervention uh, among uh, Aboriginal communities. We also saw, saw very sort of closed institutional power at, at play. So a quote from Aboriginal civil society. Um, I mean, we couldn't even get a meeting with the ministers. You couldn't get to speak to anybody, not even the bureaucracy. There was clearly this plan that had been developed. It was in place and they were going ahead full steam. Any voice or capacity for us as Aboriginal people to have any say on any of this stuff was completely not even on the radar. So a very closed policy system Mm. uh, that with all of these institutional processes that were exclusionary uh, for Aboriginal people. And then the third uh, type of power, which was the ideational discursive power, the framing 
uh, was in, and so this was from an academic still to do with the Northern Territory, Indigenous people who were represented even in parliamentary debates as being savage and primitive. So when you think about these three forms of power, the ideology, the structural power, mm. the closed institutional processes that were not allowing Aboriginal voices to be heard, yeah. and then talking about Aboriginal people in particular ways was really just sort of setting, uh, you know, setting the course for allowing a policy like the Northern Territory Emergency Response to move through. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, it's no wonder that all of those things are, are revealed in such an egregious policy and a racist policy. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you talk about, um, I believe it, it was, uh, and correct me if this is ide uh, ideological or ideational or discursive, but something else I see a lot um, uh, talking with with folks who uh, with uh, folks from First Nations communities is that often government frames what they're doing um, as as being co-design, as being community led, um, and and so there's a they they sort of are granted it, they're able to maintain a closed institutional approach to speak to that second level, but give the appearance or hiding their own power. In some of those other settings, I don't know if how how is there, you know, question without notice as usual. Um, is there a way to that the, the framework makes sense that, or even just off the top of your head? Yeah, well, and so we saw that with the closing the gap uh, analysis a little bit. So on one um, on one hand, uh, that sort of approach gives legitimacy to the the policy approach, you know, but in terms of the co-design co-led. Yeah. But what we also saw, which which was the like the small wins that for, for uh, indigenous people uh, with closing the gap was the way that they got to the table, uh, they got to the policy uh, table was first of all there was a claiming of space, you know, there were all of these other venues that um, uh, Aboriginal uh, NGOs uh, elders were being very vocal were like saying this is what it could or should uh, look like which I mean I think that's what we're seeing with the Uluru statement uh, from the heart as, as well that's a real claiming of space which is which is opening up some institu government institutional processes yeah. and that happened with closing the gap yeah. so uh, which then did lead to some some co-design uh, around Aboriginal controlled mm. uh, community health organisations. Mm. You know, that 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 was a that was a marvellous uh, yeah. development. So, um, and of course, they don't all happen in a linear fashion as well. That was the other thing right. that that we saw. You know, so sometimes, yeah, it has been. Kind of co-opted, as it were, by legitimising that you know from a within the bureaucracy, legitimising uh, a policy approach, but at the same time, it does open up some spaces uh, as well to get yeah. to the decision-making tables, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely, and and certainly in the mental health space, I 
Um, I've got my own lived experience, but I'm, I'm fortunate not to have had um, involuntary detention or treatment. Um, but a lot of the folks, a lot of my friends that I work with um, have. And yeah, there's often a, um, yeah, finding a way to get to the, get to the table and other times just building your own table um, and yeah. saying, and making it so big and saying, well, you got to come here now government yeah. come to us which i imagine is um similar to um community controlled organizations or yeah. first nations communities just um almost this sounds like uh, this is such a white white way of saying it but like a proof of concept of like we can do this now just give us the money to um to do it to control it in-house you know yeah yeah and, and it, it also you know of that um you know it's, it's it's an empowerment model isn't it? it you know it's like that's bottom up it's organizing it's coalition building it's creating mm. uh, legitimacy authority and you know then it just sort of takes on you know, a critical mass which mm. flips the the power in the, the system yeah. uh, in a sense so yeah um, and and when which we, we also saw was making use of cleavages within yeah. within government or within you know where the uh, yeah where, where those interests were not best aligned for health equity there there are often cleavages and yeah. making so when you've got this kind of growing momentum building um, in that sort of bottom up way making use of cleavages within this previously mm. all-powerful uh, system that that can flip it uh, as well yeah and I, I feel like again just to return to your Uluru example that's a really good example of claiming some space trying to get into institution and certainly um you know four years ago or, or three or three years ago when Turnbull you know made up his third chamber shtick um uh, about Uluru um you know they've been I know that community has been trying to trying to find those cleavages a ways in and it's a gradual kind of process. And like you say, sometimes you hit a critical mass and, and it just flips. Um, and people might only see the surface of that, um, you know, that flipping, but, you know, there's all of that work that, that's been done previously. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I don't think we ever see any um, progressive action without incredible long political struggle. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. Yeah. And oh, sorry, you go. No. Nope, nope, over to you. <laughs> and so what are your findings? Um, is there any anything more about what that tells us about our ability to influence public policy towards health equity? So um, if you're someone listening now and you, you have a stake in health equity or you're just re realising that now, are there lessons for you um, or for them from you about and your research about how to influence that public policy approach? Yeah, and to, yeah, absolutely. Because we did see uh, some positive uh, things happening. So, uh, and this we kind of wrote about this as sort of the weapons of the structurally weak. Uh, mm. You know, so I suppose so. The first thing is there are incredible power inequities in the policy systems. Incredible power inequities, and there's a real coalition between sort of powerful public and private. Um, private sector actors often in very kind of hidden ways around those economic uh, goals. But there were two uh, sort of two big goals for change. If you want to favour health equity, or I would say uh, favour the public interests 
thoughts, you know, in a, in a much broader sense. One is the need to unsettle that coalition. And the second is, which we've seen with COVID, um, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad, but is the latent power of the state. Mm. And the power, the state has the power to advance health equity, but it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So what we saw then in the, you know, the glimmers of hope were, so how do you do these two things? How do you um, break those coalitions and how do you um, activate the, the power of the state in the public interests? So four things, remembering that everybody, every actor in the policy system has power. Four things, one is change the narrative. Mm. And we saw that happen. So using persuasive framing, it's not just saying it differently, it's using persuasive framing um, can really, so you spoke about like human rights, human mm. rights, children, um, future uh, generations are quite powerful mm. uh, narratives mm. and so using that to kind of break the dominant uh, discourse so change the framing change the narrative using those claimed spaces to build coalitions so we saw that in um uh, in the paid parental leave uh, mm. case for example mm. where trade unions where um, the, uh, uh, the sort of the women's uh, movement uh, really they became the and, and they were getting to the table so the health people weren't getting to the table and it, it didn't have to they didn't have to be at the table yeah. but these institutional spaces were opening up for these other actors and if if their agendas were advanced that would be fantastic for health equity so, so those coalitions were really important. The second is getting inside closed spaces. Mm. Mm. And that's where the sort of the claiming space to create a wedge becomes uh, really important. And I spoke about the example with the closing the, the gap uh, strategy, like by having that sort of separate claim space, got them to the government uh, policy table, allowing them to help formulate uh, for uh, Aboriginal uh, people to help formulate what that strategy was going to look like. And then the third uh, strategy is making the hidden processes much more visible. Yeah. Um, for public, you know, really for public scrutiny, you know, it's just shameful, all those hidden agendas and deals that are, that are behind those closed doors. Um, and again, we, we were seeing that in a few of the, the cases. Once you made the agendas uh, very visible, publicly known. Um, and I, I do think at the moment with the situation, with the, the pandemic, we're now more familiar, more exposed to all of those social inequalities mm. related to health inequities, but all those social inequalities were quite disgusted by the fact that like the wealthy have made even more money in yeah. in all of this so so there's a uh, those hidden processes are a little bit more visible and, and could be a little bit more visible um 
So the, these are kind of four strategies that we saw that these structurally weak actors were using. They were using discourse, they were using other institutional processes uh, and yeah, coalitions uh, very effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, um, you know, we've dug deep into the bad, but we've um, started to dig our way out into you know, finding some hope and some glimmers of hope. And I think that that's... Um, provides a, a really effective framework um, for how to do that or, or you know, I'm sure a lot of these communities have already been doing that and it'll just be interesting to apply what your lessons are to look at, um, you know, the queer movement and how they've used those, um, you know, those, uh, the queer communities use those kind of strategies to change the narrative around a whole mm. range of things. Yeah. Um, First Nations communities, um, uh, you, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the Me Too example, Me Too is a classic example of um, changing the narrative away from uh, victim blaming, also just changing the narrative's focus away from or victim survivor blaming. Um, uh changing the narrative away from just focusing on the victim survivor to starting to actually focus on um, the perpetrators as well. Yeah. Um, and so that is also, you know, we often focus on um, my observation with a lot of these health inequality debates as we do. And this, I think this is why I connected with the research so much is we often focus on who is harmed or the inequalities, but not who benefits from those inequalities and that kind of speaks to the to the power that you um that you talk about and one of the things i'm working on at the moment which your work is is influencing is um mental health stigma so we talk a lot about um how mental health stigma harms people and whatnot and we've tried so many education strategies and it still continues somehow and i think it's because we haven't examined who benefits from me mental health stigma who are the beneficiaries of a of a society that has stigmatizing attitudes to towards people with mental health issues and who's benefiting from that and once we do reveal that then i think that we'll um we'll be able to reveal the power the processes the mechanisms and, and do something about it yeah 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 and i yeah i i think the it sort of loops back to uh, what you had said right at the start of our uh, discussion you know, around the sort of the individualizing, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about sort of equity of opportunity, but also the sort of that individual uh, way of thinking. And, you know, it's part of a kind of a biomedical model. Usually. And it's also this kind of, like, we've got to do something to fix people. And I think what, I hope what our discussion um, over the past week while has really revealed is, it's fixing the system. It's fix fixing those structures yeah. that create all of these problems for people. But like, it, it's it's over here that is. But this, of course, over here is much more uh, yeah. polit politically uh, difficult. Um, and like you say, there's a lot of people and a lot of industries, and I mean that in a very broad sense, yeah. who benefit from keeping it on the individual. You know, yeah. that's that's where they make the money and keeping it white keeping it male-centered keeping heteronormative i mean um you, you talked about the interaction there between structure and agency and part of it is also taking that if you're part of those structures and i am as a as a white male um, um as a heterosexual white male reflecting on 
how you benefit from that and taking a daily kind of personal responsibility to about how you interact with those systems. Um, you know, um, because I do think that um, the only way those systems change if you're part of them is you take a personal responsibility to um, if you're the beneficiary, I don't mean for the, for the folk who are marginalized by those systems, but if you're a beneficiary of those systems, I just think it's incumbent upon you to, to take that personal responsibility. Otherwise, because I, I hear a lot in policy at the moment, the system's broken. And I, I, don't, I don't like that narrative. I think the system's doing exactly what it's meant to do. Um, you know, and, and um, we hear that a lot in the mental health system, system's broken. Maybe, sure, like there's underfunding and whatnot. I'm sure lots of the other health systems you work in are, are, are broken. Or maybe it's just working to the agenda of neoliberalism, you know, to, to follow your logic. And um, the system needs breaking. You know, I don't know. Don't know if yeah. that. Yeah, I think that's a, a lovely way of saying it. Uh, yeah, the system is. It, the system is behaving in the way that you would absolutely expect it to behave, given the the paradigm that it's set up to, both advance and is being uh, structured by. Um, I love the idea of breaking the system. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, well, it's not mine. I'll, I'll find the quote and um, uh, in the show notes. So, okay, we're, we're, let's do some system breaking. So what can we ask our, our politicians to do to, to improve health equity then? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I've been sort of reflecting, you know, where we've got a federal uh, election this year and it just seems to me that there's this ongoing sort of ideological context between sort of a social justice uh, agenda versus an efficiency mm-hmm. uh, agenda. It's barring, um, right? <laughs> oh, uh, well, the, the latter, yeah. 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 Um, I, I haven't got an answer for how you how how you make it. it it's just you know that's down the sort of the party lines, um, but I do know that all of the evidence tells us it doesn't have to be an either or. Mm. You certainly, when you're thinking about health equity, it doesn't need to be an either or. An efficient system it it can also be an incredibly equitable system. And so, one, I would love our politicians to understand that uh, and then put in place or to kind of mandate, uh, no, to, to understand then uh, that public policy creates and distributes resources that matter for health equity. Because the politicians that I speak to who are not health politicians don't understand that what they do in their portfolios really makes a difference to health equity you know the idea you know conversations that I've had in the past with trade ministers and they just think I've come from Mars you know like why am I sitting across the table from them so please understand that the broad sweep of public policy affects health equity then yeah but you're going back to this idea that the state has all of the powers that it could uh, that that is needed to improve health equity Mm. if if put in place, if we broke the system as it currently is um, and put them in place, uh, they're there. So kind of use them, please. And we've seen some of that with uh, the pandemic. The other thing that we know that really matters in terms of political will and generating uh, movement uh, is for politicians to be vocal in their support Mm. for social and health equity. Like they've got to stand up and be courageous and yeah. say these things matter. Yeah, yeah. 
then they've got to empower the bureaucracy. So it's one hand having a politician stand up and saying all of that. And of course, the bureaucracy isn't empowered. I mean, I just, yeah. I despair that so many uh, parts of the bureaucracy are just not empowered mm. uh, to advance these sorts of agendas. So like empower the bureaucracy to, to put these sorts of actions in place, that everything is focused on equity implications. Yeah. And then the final point is politicians um, make sure that we've got inclusive governance processes, which of course we absolutely do not, uh, <laughs> and that we need much greater diversity and that all the old white men get away from the table. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we found our grab for the the five second promo grab. I love that. <laughs> no, that's I totally. Yeah, that's that's a um, a wonderful set of. Um, uh, we'll, we'll try to visualize that because I think there are a wonderful set of criteria for how we can improve our uh, our system. I um uh, uh yeah I do think that um uh, just on the point of em uh, empowering the um the public sector. You can just see it's been death by a thousand cuts um, over 15 years or so. And um, in one of the earlier episodes, I spoke to um, Professor Terry Carney, um, who does some stuff in um, social security law, and we spoke about robo debt. And that there's a whole whole bunch of reasons why robo debt, um, you know, happened the way it happened, but um, including regulatory failures from the oversight agencies, but um, the, just the cutting back of the APS, the Australian Public Sec uh, Service or Sector, and the de-skilling of that space just meant that they never identified any of these issues. And, I mean, I imagine this is a just front and centre. Um, th that, that could have been the eighth, the eighth um, mm. uh, case study, really, in terms of just the horrendous mental health outcomes um, from that policy that... Um, we hopefully are going to examine through a royal commission. Um, so you've, um, I think you've, for me, you've made a compelling case of how, um, what health equity is, you know, how we should understand it as uh, equity of opportunity or equity of outcome. I hope, I hope my comrades um, on here are outcome focused. Um, the interaction between that and power and our power um, often influences public policy at multiple different levels in lots of visible or invisible ways to kind of reinforce the status quo and maintain those inequities. Um, and that's, that's why we continue to see them. But uh, coming out of that, that, that sea of um, uh, despair, we, we see some hope in the, in the ways that other communities have claimed that space, changed the narrative and um, forced governments come to, to them in a way so I think you've given us that redemptive narrative, but what's one thing that you want uh, the listeners, you know, to go away and do after hearing you today? Yeah, so use your power. Everybody has it. Uh, it exists in multiple forms. You might not feel structurally powerful, but you've got discursive power. You've got institutional power. It plays out in many different rooms uh, and be so have an explicit focus uh, on power, on your power, on institutions in where you work or study or hang out. Uh, use it uh, to get action on social uh, and health equities. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's been my pleasure. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs>